Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Details about the FDA approval of a fourth booster shot. And that's why FDA didn't really make this as a blanket recommendation. It's really targeted on older individuals as well as those that are immunocompromised. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Hear about the California Supreme Court's first Latina justice. I think as important as her biography is the geography. She's the first judge from San Diego on the high court in a hundred years. We'll tell you about the roadblocks to getting the life-saving COVID medication Evusheld and where you can watch the theater production, Water by the Spoonful. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Earlier today, the Food and Drug Administration authorized a fourth vaccine dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna coronavirus vaccines for people 50 and older. The news comes as local coronavirus restrictions ease and San Diego moves on from the worst of the Omicron surge. But it also comes on the heels of a new variant hitting Western Europe. So what does the FDA's announcement mean for San Diego's vaccination effort today? And what impact will the new Omicron BA2 variant have? I'm joined now by Dr. Christian Ramers, a local infectious disease expert with family health centers and member of San Diego County's Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group. Welcome, Dr. Ramers. Thank you for having me. So who now can receive a fourth shot with this latest authorization? So the FDA authorization was very specific, and it applies to a couple of different groups of people, uh, the first being those that are above age 50, who have gotten their complete series, including a booster, the second being immunocompromised adults, who actually could have already gotten four shots, three in a primary series plus a booster, and then also children between 12 and 17. And we have to be a little specific about that because the different products are already authorized for different age groups, uh, meaning Pfizer and Moderna. 
Is it clear how much protection this fourth booster will actually provide? Well, the data is emerging, and a lot of it came from Israel that has been very aggressive in their vaccination and booster campaigns. Look, the the antibody levels do fade with time, especially in people that are older and who have immunocompromising conditions. And this is not really unprecedented. We have many other diseases that we give boosters for, um, depending on how the vaccine works. For example, tetanus, we get flu shots essentially every year. And then for immunocompromised people, we give boosters for pneumonia vaccines and for meningitis vaccines. That's just because the immunity does wane. For the general public who's gotten their two-shot series and then a booster, it's not really clear that another booster would really offer too much additional protection. And that's why FDA didn't really make this as a blanket recommendation. It's really targeted on older individuals as well as those that are immunocompromised. And when does the booster protection begin to wane again? The experiment that was done in Israel, the actual clinical trial that they were doing, uh, was four months. And so that's based on the best guess of, of when immunity starts to wane a little bit and when people become a little more vulnerable to severe outcomes. And so what the FDA does is it really sticks to the data. And so that's what the recommendation is. Will this new shot change what we consider to be fully vaccinated? No. And in fact, on the CDC website, fully vaccinated is still considered uh, two doses of a Pfizer or a Moderna vaccine and one of a J&J vaccine. They've introduced a new term, which is to be fully up to date. Uh, That would mean receiving the booster of Moderna or Pfizer, and then getting a booster after you get the J&J vaccine. So for now, I think those terms will not change. Um, This is, of course, an evolving field, and and stay tuned. Uh, But fully vaccinated still means the primary series. Up-to-date means that booster. And then this is just a select subsegment of the population that's being recommended to get a second booster at this point. And this authorization includes both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines. How does the J&J shot fit in here, and are the boosters interchangeable at this point? Yeah, so for the general population above age 18, the Pfizer and the Moderna are going to be interchangeable, yes. And in fact, there is some data to suggest mixing and matching and taking a different booster than your original series actually has some advantages to it. Uh, There's a slight difference between those age 12 to 17 because the Moderna vaccine is really not authorized for that group at this point. And so only Pfizer boosters are recommended. And then the J&J vaccine really hasn't hasn't really emerged as the go-to vaccine for a booster. In fact, it's not really preferred for that. So it looks like the mRNA vaccines perform a little bit better over the long term. And our health reporter, Matt Hoffman, told us yesterday that the new Omicron BA2 variant accounts for some 80 percent of coronavirus detected in local wastewater samples. This is the same variant that seems to be driving Europe's latest coronavirus surge. Are the vaccines as effective against this variant as previous ones? We'll have to wait and see what the data tells us. But the remarkable thing about these vaccines is these are all still based on the original Wuhan strain. And they they look like they still are providing very good protection against whatever variant it is that emerges at the moment. Now, you bring up a good point, which is that maybe we should be making vaccines that specifically target these new variants. And those clinical trials are actually underway at this moment. I think the move by the FDA is, uh, is something temporary that we need to do what we can to get those most vulnerable people protected until we have a little bit more targeted vaccines. Of course, the problem with developing a vaccine against a specific variant is that it, you know, that variant may be gone within several months. So we're always playing catch up. But because of the unique and amazing aspects of the immune system, uh, even using the original Wuhan strain, we can actually still uh, develop and maintain 
and sustain really good protection against whatever new variant comes along. Local case counts remain low, but wastewater samples have noticed an uptick in coronavirus levels recently. Uh, With that, as well as Europe's recent surge, do you believe San Diego is on the cusp of a new coronavirus surge like Europe has seen in recent weeks? You know, I don't like to try to predict the future, especially with COVID, but it is concerning that places have seen this BA2 variant uh, cause some surges. Everybody's in their own unique circumstances. For example, we've seen really high case rates in some Asian countries in South Korea and in Hong Kong as well. But we've had very different experiences through, through the pandemic, you know, lots of different case rates and vaccination rates and that type of thing. I think what we're going to see is a modest increase at the very least, in the, in the coming weeks to months. I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers, Assistant Medical Director with Family Health Centers of San Diego and a member of San Diego County's Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group. Uh, Dr. Ramers, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's a recently available drug for San Diegans whose immune systems are not able to fight COVID, but for some, access is an issue. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman spoke with one local resident who is anxiously trying to get their hands on Evusheld. So I have what they call primary immune deficiency. We spoke with a San Diego woman who lives with a compromised immune system. She didn't want to use her name, but says her condition has been with her since she was a kid. I had two surgeries before I was 18 for um, sinus infections that had gotten so bad that they couldn't treat them with antibiotics. I think most of high school, I was on preventative antibiotics because I was sick so often. Something as simple as a cold can send her to the hospital. And like others who are immunocompromised, she doesn't respond well or at all to vaccines. To counter that, she gets monthly antibody infusions to beef up her immune system. When the pandemic hit, the San Diego resident didn't know what to think. I was terrified. Honestly, I was like, oh gosh, like, because remember the the, the H1N1 was the last pandemic and I ended up in the hospital during the pandemic, right? Like seriously ill. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to (laughs) die. She got good news in December. A new drug called Evusheld is a preventative antibody therapy proven to give the same protection that healthy people get from COVID-19 vaccines. I was so excited. I was, I thought, finally... I can maybe like, like I have nieces and nephews that live across the country and maybe I can go visit them. And, you know, my parents are older and I haven't seen my dad since the pandemic began. Um, And I would really love to go visit him. Um, Sorry. That one, it's actually hard. I really love to visit my dad and I'm, I would love to do it and feel safe and feel not scared. Um, or feel like if I did get it, there was a very good chance I wouldn't get very sick. And I don't have, like I talked about, I just don't have that assurance right now. So it's, it's hard. She's been medically eligible for Evusheld for months. And even though she needs it, she hasn't been able to get it. Her doctor is in Los Angeles and can't get access. She was excited to hear San Diego County Medical Director, Dr. Seema Shah, recently putting out the call for treatment requests. There's definitely increasing demand, but not at at the rate at which we would like to see it. And that's really why getting that message out there to that if you're immune compromised, talk to your doctor, get refer you to get your Evu Shield. Wait, it's available? 
She tried to get Evusheld locally at UC San Diego Health, but was disappointed to find out that they and other hospitals are reserving doses for their patients. She could become one, but that would mean starting a new care plan with a new doctor. San Diego County officials control the local distribution for Evusheld. The bulk of doses are going to major hospital systems like UCSD Health, Kaiser, and Scripps. Other systems have limited supply. Healthcare in San Diego is is a little bit siloed, and there's the four or five large systems, but also a lot of people in that have private physicians, and they're kind of lost here. And, and so we're happy to serve that role. Christian Ramers is chief of population health at Family Health Centers of San Diego. It's one place that takes outside referrals for Evusheld. We've had people come down from large transplant centers in Los Angeles who, for whatever reason, cannot get it from their own system. Uh, And we've even had inquiries from out of state. The county is working to expand awareness about Evusheld, but the current system doesn't work for everyone. I actually found an infusion center in Oakland. The San Diego resident is not waiting around and is jumping on an opportunity to get the treatment up in Northern California. It's not her preferred option, but sees it as the only way to get the same protection that vaccinated people have. You know, the shot was free for everybody. I I feel like the we should also make this really easily accessible for everybody that's immune deficient and needs it. So that way they are protected and they have the same equal of a protection as a vaccinated person beside them. Federal data shows UC San Diego Health has access to the most doses of Evusheld. However, they aren't available to everyone who is immunocompromised. UCSD health officials say that they are working with the county to develop an open referral process, but that system isn't in place yet. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. The California Supreme Court welcomed its first Latina justice yesterday in Patricia Guerrero, a San Diego appellate judge. During her confirmation, Guerrero invoked her local upbringing as a daughter of immigrants. When I was growing up in the Imperial Valley, I never would have dreamed that I would be here today. One thing is clear to me. I did not get here alone. I am here because of the courage, the sacrifices, and the struggles of my parents and my grandparents. They came to this country knowing that it would not be easy for them. But like so many others, they came here with hope, hope of a brighter future for their children, the pursuit of the American dream. 
And as KQED's senior politics and government editor Scott Schaefer writes, Guerrero's appointment was not marred by the partisan roadblocks that Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson is experiencing. Scott Schaefer joins us now with more. Scott, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Good to be with you. So, Scott, as we mentioned, Patricia Guerrero's confirmation was markedly different uh, to that of Katanji Brown-Jackson's. What can you tell us about that? Well, the panel that approves Supreme Court nominees includes the Chief Justice, so Tani Kantil Saka-Uwe, the Attorney General Rob Bonta, as well as the Appeals Court presiding judge Manuel Ramirez. They know her well, all of them, for different reasons. And so I think this California Supreme Court, especially in the past, I don't know, 15 to 20 years, has been a much more collegial place. You don't see any of the rancor that you see uh, sometimes in Washington with the U.S. Supreme Court or even occasionally in the Ninth Circuit here in California. So it was a very very friendly process. The whole process from start to finish was an hour long. That's how long it took for her to be questioned and introduced and then the vote. So it was very uncontroversial. She is an exceptionally well-qualified candidate for this job. There was no question about that. She's got a great biography, as we just heard a little bit of. And so this was a pretty smooth sale for her. Tani Kantil Saka-Uwe, the Chief Justice, in fact, called it at the very beginning of the hearing a joyous occasion, and that sort of set the tone. And the same was true for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Absolutely. You know, certainly, although it became much more partisan, and it continues to be very partisan with her, uh, Judge Jackson's nomination, I don't think, uh, you know, any rational, objective evaluation of her career, her experience, and her qualifications could be anything other than stellar. What's the significance of Guerrero's appointment to the California Supreme Court? Well, I think there are several things. Um, We heard her biography, the fact that she's the daughter of immigrants uh, from Mexico. But I think as important as her biography is the geography. She's the first judge from San Diego on the high court in 100 years. Uh, William Arthur Sloan served from 1920 to 1923. Uh, You know, San Diego is the second biggest city in California, and they haven't had representation. And I think also the fact that she was born and raised in the Imperial Valley, very agricultural part of California, very high unemployment. I mean, you have a very different range of experiences, all of which you bring to the court. And so as they take up cases, those seven justices sit around a table, she'll be talking and she'll be bringing with her, in a sense, her family, community, her experiences and her background. Can you give us a little background on her legal career prior to this appointment? She has been a federal prosecutor. She worked as a U.S. attorney uh, for a year, 2002 to 2003. She was a partner in a prestigious law firm, uh, Latham Watkins, and she also was on the bench in San Diego, the Superior Court from 2013 to 17. Jerry Brown, uh, then governor, picked her to serve as an appeals court judge in San Diego in 2017. And now you have her on the uh, California Supreme Court. So a real diversity of background and experiences on all levels both professional and in the court and outside the court as well. She's a mom with two boys. And uh, I think all of those things go into making her a compelling nominee and now associate justice. And to that point, in her confirmation speech, she made a point to reference her upbringing. What can you tell us about Guerrero beyond her legal career? 
You know, I think this is a woman who was not handed anything. She earned everything. And I think that was clear from her biography and also from the things people who spoke on her behalf said. You know, she was working at the age of 16 in a grocery store to help pay for her education. She went to uh, UC Berkeley undergrad and then went to Stanford Law School, graduating in 1997. And so after she graduated, she continued to work in the community. You know, she did a lot of pro bono work on behalf of immigrants and asylum cases. She worked as a family law judge. She's very dedicated to working in classrooms. She said she loves working, especially with fourth and fifth graders to talk with them about the importance of the law and the importance of, you know, really setting your goals high and trying to really not settling, but uh, really reaching for the stars that, uh, you know, she is really the embodiment of the American dream in a lot of ways. What's been the response to her appointment so far? It's been very positive. Uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, she is the first Latina on the high court in California. And we've had a number of firsts for Latino men. Senator Alex Padilla, of course, appointed by Governor Newsom, uh, Javier Becerra, the uh, former attorney general. We've had several speakers of the state assembly who are Latino, John Perez, Antonio Villaraigosa, Cruz Bustamante, and others. But we haven't seen Latina women really reach these heights. And so I think that that's a very significant thing. And you've seen that kind of response from people like uh, Senator Durazo from Los Angeles, really applauding this, as well as uh, members of the Latino caucus in Congress saying that this is long overdue. You know, Latina women represent about 20% of the population in California. So it's, I guess you could say, high time that there is someone on the Supreme Court representing them. And how is Justice Guerrero expected to influence the court going forward? Well, you know, this is not a sharply divided court. She's replacing a justice, uh, Tino Cuellar, who stepped down. Uh, he, like all of the uh, appointees of Governor Brown and Governor Newsom, have been Democrats. They've been fairly, you know, I would say liberal, certainly right of center. You do have two justices, uh, including the chief justice, who were appointed by Republican governors, so two out of seven. But this is really a consensus-oriented court. I think where they will look to her in the chambers is, uh, you know, the times where her personal experiences as the daughter of immigrants, as somebody with young children, all the experiences that we've talked about, I think those are the ways in which they may look to her to bring a special background and experience to the kinds of cases that they take up, you know, as the Supreme Court. I've been speaking with KQED senior politics and government editor, Scott Schaefer. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jade. Father Joe's Villages is known for its efforts to help end homelessness around San Diego, and the organization offers many programs and services to help families get on the right path. One of those programs is the Therapeutic Child Care and Family Services Center, which provides resources to help shape a bright future for homeless children and help parents in need. In 2021, the program provided critical child care and support to 150 parents, and the majority were mothers. Joining me to talk about the program is Ruth Bruland, Chief Programs Officer of Father Joe's Villages, and Michelle McElroy, a mother of six and former client of the program. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Jade. So, Ruth, why is a program like this important in shaping a child's future? It's important for all children, but the stakes are even higher for families uh, who are experiencing homelessness. It is really not counterintuitive that 
when you're out on the streets, when you're doing things in, with toddlers, with really little kids, that you know you want to maybe confine them a little bit so they don't run out in the street. So the safest place for a, a small child is to be strapped into a stroller. It's the safest place for them to be. But at that age, if those kids spend a disproportionate amount of time in that stroller, so many things can happen that will uh, ultimately cause some developmental delays. Now, those delays can be mitigated really easily if we get to it fast enough. But it, it all of a sudden, that safest place to be thing becomes counterintuitive because in the big picture, it's not the right thing to have happen. So a place like therapeutic child care, we can not only provide places for the kids to run, for them to learn, but also to mitigate some of those delays that might have occurred because parents really were doing the right thing by having them confined more than otherwise they'd have to be if they were not homeless. So Ruth, what are some of the services provided by the Therapeutic Child Care and Family Services Center? So all of the services are similar to what a regular licensed child care center would do because we are licensed by the County of San Diego. And so we've got the typical things, but then we also are paying attention to those areas where there might be those developmental delays. And we work with psychologists to uh, provide the appropriate assessments for the kids. And we, we really want to zero in on those things that might get in the way of that child having equal footing, equal chance of success in school and really just in life. And who qualifies for the program? So any of our kids, as long as we've got capacity, which sometimes can be an issue, any of our, our kids who live on our site uh, at 1501 Imperial Avenue in East Village or that we have in shelter at Golden Hall, we've got a number of families that we're providing shelter for in that program. Um, and then if we've got people in our rapid rehousing program, uh, they also would qualify. Michelle, as a mother of six and a former client of the program, how did the program help you and your family? It was amazing. Every day, my children would go there after school. They had tutoring. They had places for them to work. They had computers. They just, they had everything that a child needed there. They didn't have to go outside. They didn't have to go to the library. I didn't have to worry about them on the streets. It was just all there in one spot. And the attention that they got from the teachers and the help that they got from the tutors, it was just amazing. That is great. Ruth, are, are you seeing an increase in the number of families who need this service? We experienced a little period of time where for the first time in my history with the organization, which is 23 years, we did not have a wait list for our family rooms. And that was during the height of COVID and the eviction moratorium was in place. So families were be able to double up, triple up, you know, maintain their housing through different mechanisms in ways that we had not experienced before, which for the families was good news, but you know, there's a, a domino effect in some of that. So it's a complicated situation. Now um, we're starting to see a, an uptick again of uh, families becoming homeless. And so, uh, you know, COVID is getting better. We're all glad about that, but we still, we still got some things that we need to pay attention to. So uh, there, there are ways that we could do this differently. I hope, and I trust, and that together we're going to get it figured out. Michelle, how did the program help you as a mother? 
I um, got my culinary certificate from there, which I love because I learned how to cook some amazing food. And the program there was awesome. They had great hands-on training every day. The skills that I learned, they were just in-depth. They just they just teach you so well. Me, personally, I honestly believe that a lot of my success today, basically it is because of St. Vincent Paul. They helped me get my life together. I've been sober for 10 years now. They helped me get my driver's license. I got my education through St. Vincent Paul, my GED. They trained me in culinary. I was able to get work. The tutoring and, and, and everything they had for the kids helped my children to become successful. All of us are really thankful for everything that they had to offer us. That is great. And Ruth, where can families go to sign up for the program? They can come to the Joan Crock Center if they want to see, you know, firsthand what it looks like. I, I think a lot of parents would feel more comfortable uh, if they knew what things looked like and how it felt. So that's at 1501 Imperial. And we've got a front desk that families can go and, and talk with staff there. We do have a wait list now, so it's not an immediate thing. Um, and then we also have, as I said earlier, uh, family beds at Golden Hall. And that process is managed by the San Diego Housing Commission. And so people could call the, the Housing Commission or 211 also to get information and can enter through that process. So there are a couple options. We're not the only program that works with homeless families in town, but we are one of the few programs where we um, have rooms for families at the Joan Crock Center. It's terrible when you're homeless with your kids. And so to have uh, those two locations is really, really helpful for our community. And Michelle, at this point now, you and your family are thriving, you have a home, and your daughter is college-bound, correct? They're mostly grown now. I have one child still in high school. My oldest daughter is a captain in the Army, and she graduated from one of Father Joe's programs early because of everything they had to offer. She got to do so much, and I feel a lot of her success today has come from the programs that Father Joe had offered, too. My other children... They, they loved the children's services. They, they had so much attention from each teacher that helped them become successful with the tutoring and everything. I've been speaking with Ruth Bruland, Chief Programs Officer of Father Joe's Villages, and Michelle McElroy, a former client of Father Joe's Villages Therapeutic Child Care and Family Services Center. Thank you to you both. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thank you, Jade. Great to meet you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. 
The play Water by the Spoonful by Chiara Alegria Hudes won the Pulitzer Prize in 2012. It follows Elliot, an injured Iraq war veteran. The play is partly set in a drug addiction chat room. It is set to the dissonance in John Coltrane's masterpiece, A Love Supreme. The play had its Southern California premiere at the Old Globe back in 2014. Signet Theater just opened a new production of the work. KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans spoke with actor Stephen Lone, who plays Elliot, and the play's director Meg DeBoard, who gave us her quick elevator pitch of the play to kick things off. Water by the Spoonful is about finding connection. Um, Some of our characters find connection virtually through a chat room. Some of them find it physically through their family. And also sometimes you just find connection through uh, strangers. I feel like this is an opportunity to talk about found family. Um, So sometimes you do have connection with people who are related to you by blood, but also sometimes that blood family isn't something that you feel comfortable in uh, and you create your own family by finding others. And and this play really highlights that. And I wanted to talk about that online chat group, Meg, who are these people? And also how do you pull that off on a stage? Well, these people are all on a website um, or a chat room that is created called uh, recovery together. And these specific people are recovering from cocaine addiction. And we have a set that I think can live very well in both the physical world as well as the virtual world. That was one of our big challenges. And so we have various portals. We heavily rely on projections and lighting. um, And we have moments where we have the actors look at each other, but we have to understand that they're not actually looking at each other, that was actually probably the biggest challenge is finding ways to make the text and the actors connect with each other without them physically being able to touch um, and and hug and still make it all come alive. And I want to talk a little bit about that character of Elliot, um, the veteran who is played by actor Stephen Lone. And this is part of a trilogy of standalone works called the Elliot Trilogy. Water by the Spoonful is actually the second installment, but we are given everything we need. And Stephen, I would like to hear a little bit about who Elliot is and what is Elliot's world that has given us three entire plays. So Elliot is um, in Water by the Spoonful. He is uh, six years removed um, from returning home from Iraq, um, where he enlisted as a teenager. And um, he has returned home to Philadelphia, and he has found himself just trying to adjust to civilian life um, and uh, currently working at a sandwich shop and uh, taking care of his uh, sick mother. Um, And so throughout the play, we're seeing his journey, not only navigating uh, life as a veteran, um, but also uh, with some, you know, twists and turns that have come his way via uh, his family. Um, And what we're discovering throughout this play is how he adjusts to big life events that are currently happening. 
Um, Meg, can you tell me about the Coltrane subplot, or more, more specifically, the idea of dissonance in, in music and that sister figure that Elliot has in his relationship with his cousin? Our playwright wrote the book for In the Heights, and so she's very connected to music. And she wrote each of these plays in her trilogy to be underscored maybe not literally underscored by a certain uh, song or type of piece, but they inspired her, she wrote. So for our play, actually, uh, John Coltrane's A Love Supreme is going to be heavily in our show because that was what she was listening to or inspired by as she wrote the piece. And so there's a lot of dissonance in A Love Supreme. And his cousin, Yaz, uh, she is a music professor or an adjunct music music professor. And she has this incredible monologue about the first time she heard dissonance. Uh, She was 13 and she composed a piece and her music teacher tells her, wow, it, it all goes together so nicely, but let's listen to these two types of chords together. And she plays the two chords and they have a huge amount of dissonance in them. And that's her first memory of dissonance. And I think what I love about it is that in our monologue, we, we talk, or in Yaz's monologue, she talks about how dissonance suddenly became an option for an ending before, before John Coltrane music had a beautiful ending. If there was dissonance in a piece, then it would still resolve itself by the end of the piece and end in a lovely chord. But actually that's not really how life is. And so John Coltrane said, you know what? Dissonance and that ugliness that comes with it, that can be the ending. And this play won the Pulitzer Prize in 2012. Stephen, what do you think it is about this story that resonated so much? I absolutely love um, the characters uh, that Kiara develops um, in anything that she writes. And I think what's um, so great about these pieces and and Water by the Spoonful specifically is just how real um, these characters are. You know, it's relatable. Um, I think to Meg's point about um, the playwright not not trying to make it seem as if, you know, life must always end in a, in a pretty chord. Um, it's messy. Um, you know, you might not come out at the end of, you know, this show feeling completely satisfied with everything being tied up in a nice little bow. Um, and I love that. I, I think that's, that's life, isn't it? Um, and so I, you know, I think that's what resonates the most. Um, you know, also, especially given, you know, the, di- the diversity um, of the characters in this play, um, we have Latinos, we have, um, you know, Black, we have Asian, um, you know, we have such a, a, a great representation on the stage, which is so representative of the community that we are in. Um, I think that very much resonates, especially for um, a person like me, um, who, who represents one of those communities. Um, it's very powerful. It's very powerful to see that on a stage. It's very powerful to see stories, um, you know, pertaining to, to these communities, you know, lifting them up, um, but also showing that it's, it's not perfect, right? Just, just like life. 
That was KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans speaking with actor Stephen Lone and director Meg DeBoard from Signet Theater's production of Water by the Spoonful on stage through April 24th. Michael Miserani has worked as a choreographer most of his life, but more recently has turned his attention to playwriting and to horror. This weekend, he premieres his play Twisted Bargain, which was inspired by a real-life murder case. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the playwright and one of his actors, Juan Ayala. Michael, you are probably primarily known as a choreographer, but you have been working quite a bit as a playwright, and you are about to premiere your latest piece, which is a horror play, which of course delights me, and this is called Twisted Bargain. So what inspired this? Um, as a dancer, I was asked to do a piece at a festival called Dance Theater, and the play I picked was Never the Sinner, and that was about Leopold and Loeb. So I did my research. I'm like, this is a really interesting group of guys. Like, these um, two men are twisted. The play itself dealt with the trial, but the background of the guys was really twisted. And so I delved in more. And based on that, I wanted to write a play about where I thought their minds were. It's set now, it's not set back in the 1920s when they murdered a boy. And then they were put on trial, and Clarence Darrow was their lawyer. And they were both sent to prison, and Loeb was killed in prison, and Leopold was paroled in 1958. And what attracts you to kind of these darker topics? Because this is not the first venture you've done into horror. No, and some of the dance stuff I've done has been very dark. I think a lot of it has to do with true crime. I have a desire to better understand the unthinkable capacity for cruelty and what makes a person tick and think like that. Because I think I could never do that. But I really want to understand why. A person could. And so this, this play is my idea of why they do the things they do. It's fiction, for sure, but it's my take on it. And Juan, you are playing one of the two murderers, Michael. So tell me what your character is like. He's uh, a psycho. A psycho yeah. with a little bit of a bipolar kind of uh, disorder. I think he confuses the lines in between violence and sex a lot. So what does that bring into into life? You know, that's that's the question, I guess. You know, because once you feel passionate about something, you just, you just want to do that over and over again. And that's what he feels about killing. Michael is based on Loeb. All his life used his looks and sex to get uh, what he wanted. And so that was just a way he worked. He, you know, he, it was um, second nature. And so Michael is exactly like that. He just uses the sex and the lust and that as power and not so much for pleasure, and but to get the upper hand, which also in this play, the power exchange goes back and forth. It's not just one person. And for you, Juan, what is it about kind of going to that dark place that interests you or challenges you as an actor? It's interesting because I feel like everybody has these kind of like dark personalities or dark sides of themselves. You know, it's, I don't know if I say should not or we're not allowed to present these sides of ourselves in our everyday society. And so it's great that we get to, or, you know, artists, me, myself included, get a chance to do, to bring that out and to share that into a, in a form that's productive and in, in a form that somebody else can relate to, somebody can watch. And so, I don't know, I like going there. It's always something new. It's always something that I'm not expecting what it's going to come out. And that's the fun of it, you know. Well, and in playing a character like that, do you feel you have to find something that you can identify with or that you can like? Or is it 
a character that can be just completely unsympathetic or unfamiliar mm. to you. Well, I mean, the character is definitely not likable. But me, I have to like Michael. I have to like how how he does things so that I can actually do them in a, in a real way. It's it's kind of interesting because I leave the I leave the rehearsal and so I go and I think, okay, you know, like wow, what 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 was that mindset? You know, what what was I what was I thinking? But I come back here and and it and it all comes and it's like, oh, this feels so good. So I love I love doing this, you know. You know, we watch it and think, I could never do that. I mean, we, we think about it, like, I just want to da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but then we don't do it. So what makes that person go there? What makes that, that person do that act? And that's what, like, that's the interesting thing to me to explore. How does that person get there? I want to understand that, that person, even though maybe you can't, and that person's a sociopath, and you can't understand it. But as people with hearts, we, we want to believe that there is a reason why, and sometimes there's just not. Talk a little bit about the interplay between the two characters. You talk about there's this give and take of power, but what is kind of the dynamic that fuels their relationship? Michael loves crime and cruelty. Xander is desperately in love with Michael. So he is going to do anything to be with Michael. And Michael goes, oh, well, then if that's the case, well, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And so they make this pact, a twisted bargain, and then it just escalates and escalates. And they just think they're so smart and their minds are so intellectual that let's do the ultimate crime. Let's kill someone. And we're so smart, we'll get away with it. But they find a bargain and they make, if you do this for me, if you do crime and murder, I'll give you what you want, physically and carnally. And not that that's what happened in real life, but that's my take on it. So just so people can get a little taste of what the play is like, you've selected a scene for the actors to read for us. And what is this going to be? So this is the scene where they decide who they're going to kill. Michael, played by Juan Ayala, is in one bed, and Xander, played by Hunter Brown, is um, in the other. And they're discussing almost gleefully how, how they're going to kill this person. How are we going to do it? Let me think. Baseball bat to the head? No. It'll do the job. A rock to the head, then we toss the body off a cliff? <laughs> Genius. We'll take turns. Yeah. Uh, first me, then you. And if people notice it's missing... He's gone missing before. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. He'll turn up. He always does. He always does. We have to plan the details. I know. Uh, La Jolla Cove? No. Tory Pines, Gliderport? Uh, Tory Pines? People have died there before. They bounce off every crag, every ledge before they hit bottom. Very easy to stumble and lose your balance. <laughs> Especially if you're drunk. Which he will be. Goddamn alcoholic. You need to meet with Celeste. But you hate Celeste. Not for that, he'll be there. You're right. Always passed out on the corner. Send him on an errand. Tell him to pick up some liquor and then meet you and Celeste at the glider point. And he'll be drunk, so he'll take a lift. Make sure he takes a lift. We don't want him to drive off a cliff and kill himself. <laughs> yeah, that'll be ironic. <laughs> Drop off Celeste, and then I'll meet you at the glider port. Can we go together? No, separately. And we can't take a lift. We can't have any sort of record, any paper trail. And how do we get there? We walk. That's like f***ing three miles. We walk. In the dark. There are paths. Fine. I'll meet you here, and then we can walk over together. Yeah, that'll be better. And alibis. We're not going to need them. Doesn't matter. We have to have them. All right. I'll drop off Celeste and head back here. And I'll be your alibi. Great. I'll post photos on Facebook and Instagram. Stupid things like alone again on a Saturday night, hashtag one of the loneliest numbers, sad face. <laughs> From the dorm? Yes. And the laundry room. I might as well make good use of my time. Yeah, just in case. Never hurts to be prepared. Like f***ing Boy Scouts. Like Superman. Superman. So Juan, what is it like playing an intense scene like that? 
<laughs> I mean, every actor's dream, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this scene is really a dark comedy scene in that they're sitting on the bed and talking how they're, I'm going to kill this man, but there's almost a gleefulness in their voice as they plan. So it's not very, oh, we're going to kill someone. It's, it's like, we'll do this, and we'll do this, and we'll do this, and we'll do this. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's like college boys on their beds gossiping about stuff as opposed to two guys planning a murder. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking about Twisted Bargain. Thank you, Beth. Come watch it. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Michael Mizraini and Juan Ayala. Twisted Bargain opens this weekend at 10th Avenue Arts Center in downtown San Diego. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 